Hello, everyone. I'm Dr. April Foreman. I'm from the executive board of the American Association of Suicidology. I am social distancing from my dining room in sunny Baton Rouge, Louisiana. Hello, and welcome to Closer Social Distancing, where we're helping each other stay connected and inspired while physically apart. I'm Alex, and in this episode, I interview Dr. April Foreman, a licensed psychologist who sits on the board of directors of the American Association of Suicidology. We talk about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic on suicide, and she provides practical mental health tips that can help us all stay happier and healthier through this tough time. If you or someone in your life is having suicidal thoughts, as you'll hear in this episode, you are not alone, and there are ways to get help. We've listed crisis call and text hotlines in the show description and on our website, closersocialdistancing.com resources. On our site, you'll also find inspirational and educational content, like our latest animated video, Your Brain on Social Distancing. Lastly, we have more amazing interviews coming your way, so hit subscribe on your podcast app so you don't miss a thing. Thank you so much for joining, Dr. Foreman. Very excited to talk to you. Uh, you have a super important message to get out to people. So let's start. Um, tell us what do you do and what is your mission as a mental health professional? Um, you know, I, I love that you uh, chose to ask me about my mission because when I, when I talk to folks, um, I always start with that. So I'll start with that. You know, my mission in life is to relieve pain. Uh, one person, one problem, one minute at a time if I have to, and to be more effective than that if I can. Um, I do that in multiple ways, wearing multiple hats in the suicide prevention and suicidology field. Uh, when I'm on Reddit, people are like, is suicidology a thing? It totally is a thing. And so I'm an expert about suicide and also suicide and technology and and how to provide care for folks who are very high risk. And I'm so excited to be here today because I would like to offer some some very new thoughts in our field because most of the suicide care that I would have normally provided uh, are many, many things you cannot do during a pandemic. So we're having to sort of change what we're doing right now. Right. Well, thank, thank you for the work that you do. Um, so let's start at with a let's start at the basics. So right now we have a global pandemic going on and from a physical health perspective, we are very focused on stopping the spread, treating those who are sick, getting the medical equipment we need into the hosp- into hospitals. But what is happening with mental health right now? We're not hearing so, so much about that. Yeah, right, because uh, you've got to stay alive, right? Uh, yeah. One of the wonderful things that Marsha Linehan said, which is I don't know, therapy doesn't work on anyone who's dead, to my knowledge, <laughs> right. Marsha Linehan said, right? So we, of course, want to help everybody stay alive. And when we're talking about mental health, what I can tell you is almost everyone I know is under more strain and has had more disruption in their lives than before how the pandemic came to the United States or to whatever part of the world they're in. And so uh, for people's mental wellness, um, I think there's a lot of maybe I'll be alone and I'll be sad and I'll be depressed, but there are also some really other big things that are happening. So people's physical routines are changing a lot and that impacts your ability to get good sleep. Um, you don't sleep well, uh, that you don't, nobody regulates their emotions well when they sleep. People are very worried about, they have realistic worries about contracting a disease and possibly dying or 
having someone they love contract this disease and die. And these are realistic worries. Um, people are worried about finances and worried about paying the bills. They're worried about taking care of their children. They're worried about their family that are further away. Their exercise routines may have been disrupted. Their primary care and other routine medical care may be disrupted. And, the, and most of us uh, have had the rhythms or routines of their lives sort of thrown up into the air in a way we can't predict for an indeterminate period of time. And that's really just not good for almost anyone. And so all of us are un, in non-optimal circumstances. And because your mental well-being for many people is really tied to routine and balance, and uh, you know, some homeostasis and the things that you might do to nudge or to balance yourself have been thrown out of balance or made impossible. We're, many of us are experiencing shifts in our mood and shifts in our well-being, and we're not sure what to do. And, and by the way, well, I'll totally use myself, me included. I had a, I sleep really well. I'm uh, known for being a really regular uh, sleeper and very like very consistent person. I had a six day streak of uh, insomnia where I only slept a couple hours a night. And I was kind of nutty. I was so nutty at work that my friends who've known me for a while, they're like, uh, people who've never asked me if I was okay. They're like, are you all right? I'm like, I haven't hardly slept in six days. Yeah, We're all going through something. And for some of us, if you have more, um, if you have mental health that that's more prone to being destabilized, and we'll talk a little bit about that, not everybody can be destabilized as easily. But if you're a person that was at risk, this is particularly difficult because it's it, it, you're you're going to be destabilized faster. It could be destabilized more, and it could be harder to get your mood even. And there, we're we're talking about hundreds of millions of us in the U.S. and billions of us all going through this. Mm. And so. Um people who have maybe never had mental health challenges that they've acknowledged in their life could be having those for the first time. People who have had things like anxiety, depression, um, suicidal thoughts, those could all be exacerbated right now. So really no, no one's immune to this. No, no. And, and we know that generally speaking, um, you know, anywhere to about a quarter of the population might have a mental health challenge in a year. And this is a really unusual year. So this could be happening for a lot of people. Okay. So you specialize in suicide prevention care. So I'm curious with COVID-19, how is it specifically affecting the risk related to suicide, whether it's more people now at risk or people who have been at risk now being at higher risk? What are you seeing in that area? So. I would say that when you're restraining a system and making it unpredictable and destabilizing it, there's so much about suicide risk that's um, about about destabilization uh, and and being highly vulnerable to that. So people at high risk, like this is likely going to make your risk higher. Like this would make anybody's risk higher. If you were already at high risk, it will likely be worse. You know, I've, I, once, I once had an MIT researcher say something, you know, I was talking about data. He says, I never... You never hear, you, we don't have good evidence that people kill themselves if they have had any kind of sleep in the last three days. Like, so the insomnia and disruption of people's sleep and a whole lot of things can disrupt your sleep, including changes in physical activity, changes in diet, changes in routine, changes in stress. They're all happening right now. I think um, additionally, some other things that impact people's suicide risk. Feelings alone can't kill you. So uh, one of the things that we have to keep in mind is that people don't die from feeling like killing themselves. They die from taking that action. And so right. we know that gun sales have gone up 
in the US. And so if you have highly lethal means, and, and full disclosure, I'm a firearm owner. I have all the things, including one of those AR-15 things. I'm not, I'm not here to have that conversation. I'm here to have a public health conversation. We know that people brought firearms home because they're worried about home defense or, or hoarding or looting. And so if your mood becomes destabilized and you have access to firearm, we know people who attempt suicide with a firearm die 90% of the time. And so here people are very stressed out, destabilized, possibly at home with their firearm. You might, um, if you have a substance abuse issue, one of the things that we've noticed is that a lot of people who die by suicide uh, have complications related to their suicide attempt from substances. We know that full substance use is getting disrupted. Um, I mean, this is, I'm a real nerd for the details, so I apologize to your listeners. No, it's, it's but really we know, helpful. <laughs> we know that the chemicals for producing a lot of different drugs in Asia aren't are not getting shipped over to the U.S., so the components of some drugs, then the people who produce them, and, and granted this is organized crime or the black market, but it's still a workforce, right? Well, they're walking out because they're social distancing, so guess what? They're not making drugs. Shipments to the U.S. from abroad are getting disrupted. I'm sure that there will be shipments but it's going to be harder. So drugs are going to be more expensive. They'll be harder to obtain. Uh, who your regular supplier is or the regular drugs that you are getting might not be, will be disrupted. And what we've learned in my field is that when, it, like, think about drugs like a black market pharmacy, like you knowing where your supplier comes and what you're getting, like is how you keep things regular. And we're talking about disrupting balance. And so this is, people are going to withdraw. We, I've heard anecdotally on the street that a lot of people who use and who have substance abuse disorders were like, if I have to be home from work anyway, might as well go to get treatment, especially since I know I won't be able to get drugs now. And it won't be conspicuous because everybody's teleworking or going home or whatever. Right. So there was an increase of people seeking treatment, which is good. But for those who might not have access to treatment or treatment facilities might say, we can't have you in residential care because social distancing, like it's, it's how we're going to provide substance abuse treatment. It's going to be harder. And so all like those kinds of risk factors have just been complicated. And we think about things that are related to suicidal crises, conflicts in your relationships and financial problems are always like at the top of the list for things mm. that, that trigger um, a suicidal crisis. And so you're at home in with the people you might be in conflict with. And so we know that folks who are in issues, situations of interpersonal conflict and domestic violence having a very hard time right now. And you might be laid off or you might have lessening of your financial right. resources. And so once again, so, so the kinds of things that trigger a crisis, so you have ambient risk as being like making you more vulnerable, then you're more likely to experience the things that will trigger crisis right in the middle of the time when your drugs might not come in and you have a lot of access to a gun. And so we're, we can see all of these sort of things, unfortunately, come together and increase risk in a lot of different ways. Yeah. And it's all, it's all very nuanced and it's not like you're staying home with the people you live with because you're all taking vacation. You're stuck inside in a stressful situation. You can't go to work. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, it does all those all those factors building on top of each other creates a really dire situation. And it's fascinating. You mentioned that um, access to illegal drugs can destabilize people because they do rely on them. It's part of their routine. And uh, I know we've heard a lot in the news about people not having access to the prescription medications, but let's talk it, about that. Let's, let's talk about that too. So um, uh, you're a healthcare so, professional. Tell us how the healthcare mm -hmm. system itself is being disrupted from 
access to prescriptions, facilities. So remember that people are going home and they're self-quarantined and they're sick. So most places are having de-staffing. So think about if uh, where you might get your medication. So say your doctor, so like you have to call in a prescription to your pharmacist. You might have short staffing at the facility where your prescription is. And this is if you already have a prescription, like you don't need a new one, but you already have one. So there might be short staffing for your prescription. It might be hard to get someone to sign off on it. Might be the nurse may ha- they may be detailing people over to do COVID care or take care of other fires that they're putting out. It's very easy. I have a, a husband and a son who get routine medications, and it's really easy for something to get like really truly with. The, and we're on top of it, and it's really easy for there to be a miss. Then it's going to go over to uh, a clinic, or excuse me, a pharmacy. Uh, like we get ours at the Walgreens. Well, the Walgreens has changed its hours. And they're not convenient hours anymore, right? They're not nearly 24-7 hours. And the pharmacist or the pharmacy techs might be calling in, so they might be short-staffed and filling those orders. And then how things might get delivered or how things might get restocked might change. And so all the things that in between you knowing you need a medication and then you getting that medication, they're going to have disruptions from staffing and from supply chain issues and from in the healthcare system being detailed away to other tasks that are high emergency. Mm. And then from the perspective of suicide prevention care, um, what are some of the emergency resources that people have historically relied on? And are those still available? If you need to go to an emergency room, if you need to get your doctor on the phone, connect with your therapist, um, what are you seeing in that realm? So let's start with the good news. The good news is a a lot of mental health care is talking and talking doesn't have to help it happen in the same room. So I'm a person who has telehealth credentials. I've provided telehealth care um, and, and often done it at a distance. And there was this taboo against mental health care, telemental health care for people who were suicidal, as if like somehow a video chat was more dangerous if you had suicidal feelings. And in fact, that's not true. And if that's the only way I can get to you, that's certainly, you know, better than nothing. And so we've had a lot of uh, mental health care providers now providing phone and video calls who would have avoided treating folks who were suicidal, who couldn't come in other ways. So like that could be a benefit. But some of the other disruptions might be that your provider may be out sick. You may be out sick and miss appointments. Your meds might get delayed or interrupted in some way. If you go to group therapy, many people find group therapy very helpful. Probably not going to have a therapy group, or at least not the way that you used to. If you went to AA or if you went to other kinds of support groups, those things might get interrupted. And um, the ability, you know, when I was doing um, suicide care high risk, you could I, I had a walk-in policy. So if you needed to talk phone or walk in, like I would see folks with high frequency. Well, that's a lot harder to do by phone than if you've got somebody in a waiting room. Uh, where if I had a bunch of people calling in or videoing in, it would be harder for me to direct traffic. My receptionist isn't like running right. running, uh, running the show behind the scenes so that I can line things up or I'm going to have access to my nurse or whatever. So, so things could get chaotic or confusing. People may not know how to get to their providers. And I, I always like to be very clear that if you're having high-risk care, the chances of you not having a physical health issue very, very low. So many of my folks in my high, my high risk for suicide clinical group had multiple medical conditions. And so you, um, and many of them had two particular medical conditions stand out to me. Many of them had blood sugar regulation issues, like a, a version of diabetes or similar and like migraines or pain issue. And so your, your 
diabetes care, your migraine care might get interrupted. We rely heavily on emergency rooms. So almost all high-risk patients have a safety plan. And it says, if you're really suicidal and you can't keep yourself safe, call 911 and get an ambulance ride or have someone take you to the ER. You go to the ER, you might be exposing yourself to COVID-19. Yeah. And they may not have a bed for you anyway. And so that reliance on the emergency department and law enforcement and your EMS as the suicide care option of last resort just really isn't isn't reliable for every American all the time right now. And and we'll have really, really varying reliability. And so now our field, people are like, so what do we do if we just don't send people to the emergency room? Now, there's a silver lining in that. There is no evidence that emergency room care improves people's outcomes. Mm. Uh, As a matter of fact, some of our best experts in the field talk about sending people to the hospital as possibly giving people a risk factor. We know that um, people who die by suicide, the two strongest predictors are having attempted suicide before, which is a historic risk factor, right? And the second is an acute risk factor, which is having been inpatient or to the emergency room for mental health care of any sort, suicidal Mm -hmm. or not, in like like the last day or two or the last couple of months or weeks. And so we know when we send people to the emergency room, we might be giving them a risk factor versus finding a way to treat them. Right, right then and there. So it might encourage the field instead of just sending you to the emergency room where they say, well, you're not going to die. And then they send you home and give you a $4,000 bill or whatever. It might be encouraging us to start to find ways to use telehealth to stabilize the person where they are and start immediately providing suicide care, which is um, optimistically, that's what I hope that we do is that we start to find a way to do telehealth right then when someone's in a suicidal crisis versus an ED. Um, referral and then a referral to therapy two right. weeks later when someone can work them in. Which which uh, seems, especially right now, like a more reliable option because you know that they're if they can get a telehealth appointment, they will be getting an appointment and they will be getting care and it would be with a professional in that field. Whereas if you show up at an ER right now, um, no fault of the hospitals, they're dealing with so much, but it could be very chaotic and may not get you the right care you need. And you often don't get care. So the emergency room really isn't a great place to get suicide care unless you literally cannot physically stop yourself from harming yourself other, other than physically restraining you mm. or emergency medication, which, which may or may not kick in. There's not too much that you can do in an emergency room right then. So helping okay. people outlast the 30, 30 to 60 minutes of an acute crisis, make a safety plan, make their environment safe, and start talking and doing enough of a conversation that I might be able to order some labs and possibly start a start a medication or continue refill adjust medication. A lot of that can happen telehealth wise. It, that would be cheaper. It's usually way less traumatic. Uh, when you're in the middle of a suicidal crisis, being in a back of a police car yeah. is not usually a healing experience. And we certainly can't rely on doing that now. So it might encourage us to develop systems for better practice. Yeah. So, um, help us help, help me and anyone watching understand what it might look like or feel like as an individual to start experiencing these mental health problems. If you start, what, what, what is that experience of starting to become or feel suicidal or to see that in someone else? What do you look for? How might you recognize it in yourself? You know, um, 
That's a great question. And I would tell you that it's really, really variable. So a lot of people want to know, like, kind of what are the signs or how would I know? Um, there is no, the research, there's no one agreed upon uh, way that, that that presents. The research doesn't have agreed upon like, series of events or signs. If you were thinking about killing yourself, that's not normal. Uh, it's common, like it happens, but it's just like colds happen, right? The common cold, but it's not normal. It's not healthy. It means you're sick. So if you're thinking that you might want to die, that is a wonderful sign that it's time to reach out for help. Um, the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, 1-800-273-8255. If you're a veteran, press one, right? Um, and going to, if you're a uh, crisis text line, text to 741741. And if you don't know what's happening, but you don't think you're right, I say that one of the best signs is trust your gut. If you're like, I'm not okay, just believe yourself and take yeah. care of yourself, just like you would want for your friend. Um, I would say things that if you're having those thoughts and you haven't been sleeping properly, your food or your schedule is very off and you're very different than normal. And I think it could be any of a number of signs or symptoms, but what you're looking for is that you're functioning differently, markedly differently. Uh, used to be very emotional and then you're kind of flat or um, you're kind of pretty, like I was talking, I'm pretty, you know, everything's going to be fine. We're going to do this. And then I was like, really, really intense. My, my friend who, who knew that I was not doing well. Um, and I was not suicidal. I just had a really bad insomnia. And she said, you're firing off emails like this fast. She goes, you usually wait. And you send one email and you're not the person who sends 15 in rapid succession. And it was just like, if someone's behavior is really different, here's a real wonderful clue. Don't wait until like you're thinking about suicide. Just take that very seriously that mm -hmm. you're not okay. If your behavior is very different from normal and get yourself some support. I promise you, you have almost nothing to lose. And you, and you know, my friends mentioned it to me. And by the time I think my fifth friend had mentioned something to me, I was like, I've got to do stuff. And so I had, you know, I, um, I could drink coffee all day long and sleep all night. It was cut the coffee. I uh, doubled up exercise, so I was wearing myself out, and I did a couple, um, just a couple of ways of shutting my computer down and stopping work, uh, and almost immediately began sleeping again. But like, if you don't take it seriously, it could progress to being suicidal, and being suicidal is about the instability. Mm -hmm. So the more that your whatever symptom or other issue, the more that it flips and flops, the higher your risk, and so. Think, think as if your behavior is not really consistent. That's probably a good, a good sign that you might be at risk. And if you've ever attempted suicide in the past or been at high risk for suicide in the past, just assume that you're heading that direction and get yourself care. So um, we, we painted a, a relatively grid picture before about how everything is very destabilized and the support you can get mm -hmm. and access to treatment. But I know that you're here today with... Uh, good resources and good news for people. So I want to go through a couple of scenarios um, uh, and have you paint a picture of how people can be proactive. And so the first one is someone who knows that they have a history of mental health challenges. How can they, before, before that starts building up, how can they uh, have a proactive plan, you know, knowing that this is not ending in the next five days, you know, we're, we're doing this coronavirus thing for a while now. How can someone be proactive? 
So one of the things that I did right before things really got going um, is I had not been in primary care in a while. I was very naughty and didn't go to the doctor. And I had an appointment and I established myself with the primary care provider. If you know that you might be having some challenges or you've had them in the past and you just know you're in the higher risk group, if you are not already established with a mental health provider, get reestablished. You might uh, consider calling your local community mental health center to find out what the situation is in town. Uh, you, even if you end up not using them, I'm sure that they're working out telehealth. Community mental health covers most of the country, and I'm sure they're working out telehealth options, and they might be able to tell you about referrals. If you've had someone in the past, it's time to call them and say, hey, I don't know if I need you now, but how, like, let's, let's talk. Can I talk through really quickly how to get on your books for when I, if I, if I need you, or should we do an appointment? Yeah. If you have any kind of physical thing, or if you've just not been in primary care recently, get established with a primary care provider, especially if you can do so without exposing yourself to like risk of contracting COVID-19. Um, can, like, can you call and get reestablished? Can, like what, what can you do so that, and then you're, then you should ask, like, should I go to the surgeon care if I start to feel sick? If my blood pressure is not right, if my insomnia gets bad, if I have migraine issues, where should I, how should I manage my migraine care? Like what, how is the system changing? And that's how you're going to find out because these systems are going to be fluidly changing and be highly variable. You're just going to call and you're going to ask and you might like just check in every once in a while. If you need a telehealth appointment, mental health or regular physical health, just get one. Get your well checks, if you, especially if you can get them via telehealth or if there's a safe way for you to do that and get established in care. Do that proactively, especially if you're stuck at home. You might like the change in pace. Just, you might like someone who's taking care of you. If you are well established, check and find out what the routines are. Make sure you fill your medications. Some people are choosing to fill medications for longer periods than they usually do. So where, whereas your refill might have been once every 30 days, some people are getting 90-day refills or things like that. Now, if you're at high risk for suicide, having medications you can overdose on, you might not want large quantities in the house, but maybe someone would hold your medication for you that you could get to, like a family member or something like that. You could lock ours up in a safe and could just give me what I need. But then if there's any irregularities with the pharmacy, I'm covered. And so people who have chronic mental health issues and take medication or just physical health, just get your medication so you know where they're going to be and you can take them really consistently. Mm -hmm. um, and, and if you know you're high risk, um, hopefully you've got a provider who practices best standard of care and you have a safety plan. And we're gonna, hopefully we'll talk a little bit about this. Yeah. Safety plans were never developed with a pandemic in mind. And Dr. Barbara Stanley, who's, who's considered the, one of the experts in safety plans, has recently released a guide, and hopefully we'll talk about this, about how to adapt safety planning for pandemics, because there are whole planks in the safety plan, like social distractions that might be really hard to use mm. when you're in the middle of social distancing. And so pull that safety plan out, consider redoing it. If you have a provider, call your provider and say, it's time for us to like make a a pandemic version of my safety plan so that you, my provider, and I have it and just be really proactive. I guarantee you most providers have not thought that they've got to rewrite all their patient safety plans for the next few months. Right. Yeah, that's great. great. So um, there's the, the basic care elements, get set up with your primary care doctor, make sure you have the medications you need and rethink the plans that you already have for the pandemic situation. 
Um, so next sort of scenario help guide us through, let's say um, you are someone who is experiencing um, suicidal thoughts um, and you, you're in more of a crisis situation. Um, uh, you mentioned maybe showing up at the ER is not the best option right now. What are some alternate uh, options for someone who feels like they're in the middle of a crisis? So because it's hard to say, like where I'm living in Baton Rouge, uh, as I think New Orleans is on the news a lot, and I happen to know that our emergency room departments are really flooded with people who are very, very, very sick. And so it might, in fact, I might have really good reason to not want to go to the ER. Uh, And so what I recommend that people do is that they contact the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline, uh, 1-800-273-8255, press one if you're a veteran or someplace like crisis text lines, texting to 741741 and consult. Um, Because no two suicidal crises are exactly alike and what you might do might vary from person to person or situation to situation. What you can do is start to talk through your options. Sometimes crisis workers can help you contact the ED and find out if it's safe for you to go in. In some communities, it's still fine and you might very much wanna go in. In other ones, it may not be. What I can tell you is that they're well-trained, and I happen to know, because I'm on advisory boards for everything, that our crisis industry is really working to help give people good advice in this sort of new and different circumstance that they're in. Don't worry by yourself. Consider involving someone else. If you're social distancing and you have your supports, a trusted member of your support network, consider having them call with you to consult. Hmm. I promise two heads are better than one. I, I never treat somebody at high risk or suicide all by myself. I'm always consulting and I always have someone over helping me look at my care and I would never provide my own care for myself by myself, right? I, like call someone and ask and they'll help you figure out the system depending on what region you're in, what, and what the situation on the ground is that day. Yeah. And I think, um, I imagine having someone else involved will make any of those potential rejections or obstacles a little more manageable if you call and someone can't see you or the place you usually go to is closed having someone help you think through other options could be a much better experience than panicking on your own well and when you're in a suicidal crisis we know that the majority of the time your your problem solving and thinking is actually really impaired mm. so it's a great it's a great time to not rely on yourself yeah. right like i don't drink without a designated driver i think like have have a designated driver for your suicidal crisis right, right. like someone someone who's not impaired to help you additionally we know that when people die by suicide they rare it's not common they rarely do it in the presence of others and so just having somebody around even if it's somebody by phone on text or chat, if you are social distancing by yourself, so you might really be isolated. The good news is that you probably have a friend who is available digitally and having someone check in with you decreases your risk quite a bit. Mm, Yeah. And uh, um, I guess on the flip side of that is if you have a family member, friend, someone in your community that you know, maybe struggles with these things, checking in with them can be a proactive way to offer help. That is, you're so kind, Alex. Yes, so (laughs) I have absolutely been included on some of my friend's safety plans. Mm. Uh, If you decide, like me, that a suicidal crisis is just a normal public health issue, it's just a normal health 
healthcare problem. And that one of the things that you do is you enlist someone to help you. I definitely, friends in my industry, people who are excellent at their jobs, I've definitely volunteered to be on their safety plans. And it's very easy to just say, hey, now I'm just going to check in and see how you're going. You just put it on your calendar. And I've totally done this. I'm like, I'm on so-and-so safety plan. I'm going to call them every couple of days. I'm going to check in and see how they are. And if you're, if you're the helper, uh, like I've had a lot of people say, I don't even know. It's a really weird conversation to have. And I don't know how to have that. And I think that, that's a great beginning of a script. You yeah. say, hey. I don't know how to not be weird about this and not be awkward, but if I loved you, how could I possibly not check in? I just want to check in and see how things are going. How, how's your suicidal feelings? How have they been? Just like, really just like, how's your blood sugar been up down? Yeah. Like, how's that going? Just have them tell you uh, how, you know, you got your safety plan still. Have you needed to use it? Uh, did you need me? And I wasn't there. How will I know if you need me? Have we figured out what to do? Hey, have we called and found out what the situation at the ED is? Like, don't make it a weird, like, long hour if it does not need to be an hour. Yeah. They're like, eh, just kind of come and stay, come up. You're like, cool, cool. Just wanted to check in. You know, I'm just going to check in a little bit more frequently right now because I'm home and I'm bored and I got nothing to do. And I'm a busy body, you say. Kind of make it a little funny. Funny works. And you know what? Uh, just having what's called caring contacts. We know that caring contacts from your doctor and your friends, we know that just that alone, I know, reduces their risk. And, um, what friends tell me later is like, remember therapists are friends with other therapists. So like I had a lot of friends who are therapists, but you actually just checked in. I didn't have to talk about it all hour. Like I was sick or broken. Yeah. I knew that you would check in later. I knew that you were consistent and, and consistent caring contacts, very non-demanding. We know, are one of the very few interventions, unlike emergency rooms, which we don't have any evidence doing any good. We know that actually decreases the chance someone will attempt or die in the future. Yeah, and I love the the destigmatizing of it, treating it like any other any other thing that's going wrong with your whole person. Whether it's yeah. you know I broke my leg and someone calls, hey, how's getting up and down the stairs going? You need need any help? Um, uh, things going. How many forks have you lost down that calf this week? Right. <laughs> <laughs> um, changes in your brain are are no different. It's all one person. So I, I appreciate not, um, not having a stigma when you ask questions and check in about what's happening in someone's yeah. mind as opposed to their body. Some really non-stigmatic questions to ask. If you're a really cool friend, you'll be like, so how's your sleep? Cause everyone can talk about their sleep, right? Insomnia has like almost yeah. no stigma. So like check in someone, if someone's telling you their sleep's bad, you might like escalate your worry or concern. Um, like, like that's probably not the time to grill people about their substance abuse, but you can totally ask about people's sleep and almost nobody, how's your body feeling? Like, how's your stuff? Like, cause people are, when people are suicidal, there's usually stuff happening with their, you know, hey, how's that going? Can I help you call your doctor? And then you can kind of ease into the other stuff. Um, the really hard conversations to have are the ones about guns. Um, I, I, I forget cause I practice it so much, but there's, um, Conversations about lethal means, C-A-L-M, the Suicide Prevention um, Resource Center, SPRC.org, has CALM training that teaches providers how to ask about guns and lethal means, but anyone can take it. It's a free training. If you're on someone's safety plan, mm. you might you might just be like, hey, 
I can hold your guns for you. I got a gun safe and they're disabled, right? Your ammunition, you've stored your ammunition someplace separately under a different lock, right? And, and let me tell you what, um, I, I am shocked at how easy it is to talk with somebody else about that. If you're like, it's just a thing that you do. Right. And, and, and you say, this is weird. I don't want to be pushy, but if I loved you and I knew you were thinking about suicide, how could I just not check and see that your guns are stored safely and possibly yeah. out of your house? Can we talk about that? Yeah. Now, thanks for modeling that here. Um, that'll be really helpful for everybody. So you've mentioned uh, safety plans and I think you have some, you've got, must have some great ideas uh, forming or you've already thought through about adapting safety plans. So um, can you give us uh a picture of what is a safety plan? What are some of the mm-hmm. core components on it? And then how can somebody take their safety plan now and start adapting it? So maybe some ideas of, you know, normal life, pandemic life, safety plan. And I can tell you, I don't know when you're posting this podcast, if you post links to things, but I, uh, if I will send you the links you can post because there's a wonderful detailed explanation but that Dr. Stanley herself did. Okay. And that I, I think that you should just, people can just look at with, and it's a couple of pages and I, I like to talk a lot, but not even I like to talk that much. Yep. We'll put but it, safety we'll plans, integrate it right in. Yep. Perfect. Because apps, I, I'm, I know that nobody's really updated Um, like templates in, in healthcare systems and apps that people are using. So like, so here we go. So safety plans are sort of a, like a six or seven step sort of process. And they're very like scripted. They're not, they're always like the same, but help you recognize when you need to use a safety plan and help you figure out what to do if you're in a suicidal crisis. And it starts from the early signs that you might need to do something to sort of help you all the way to your eminent, eminent risk. What should you do? And so it starts with warning signs. Well, some of those warning signs might be, I withdraw from family and friends. Well, you're already home all day. Right. Warning. <laughs> so, so, right. So you might, you might look at your warning signs and see if the things that might tip off yourself and others to the fact that you need to use your safety plan See if those still apply. Um, if it's insomnia, for example, and I think everyone's like, if your sleep starts to be weird or your appetite starts to be weird, like pay attention. Um, and, and it could be stuff like that. But isolation and withdrawal may not be obvious ones and people may not be able to tell. And you might need to say, like, if I don't make my phone calls to stay or if I start not talking to people on my online gaming communities. And so you might just think, how does that look differently? And then, and then you might start to look at some of the other um, so, sorts of things that you can do on your own. So there's like a, uh, there's a whole section of things that I could immediately do if I know I'm not doing well. Well, the good news is things that you can do on your own if they're at your house are probably going to be fine. So um, I live in a very religious place so many people might read their Bible or other things. Uh, they might pray. These are things that were great during a pandemic. Um, you might, uh, you might find that taking a shower, taking a nap is great, but like going and getting a massage may not be in the cards. <laughs> no, I don't uh, think so. <laughs> <laughs> um, but maybe watching a movie or like, so think about things that you could do to soothe yourself right away that you can do. Um, right now in my home, there are myself, my husband and two teenagers, and we've kind of got to things that we can do on our own for ourselves. Like depends on what room you're in. 
like how much privacy you have. So you like you might, uh, you know, we only have so many bathrooms. So if I need to take an hour long shower to be with myself, like I make my type of bathroom. So just think about like what your home circumstances and adapt what you're doing. Then they have things like social distractions. Um, that's going to be harder. The good news is we're a digital community. Um, I would strongly advise you to think about ways that you can be digitally connected to others. I Veterans are great. I work with veterans a lot, um, although I'm not speaking from that hat. And there's a wonderful organization called Stack Up that uh, basically has 24-7 game streaming that like people can play video games, stream together, talk while they do it. So think about that Discord chat, about things that you love. I have, I'm a diehard nail polish collector and I have little nail polish check. I know that's, but if you suicide all day, you've got to polish your nails. <laughs> so I'll go talk with them about things that I'm collecting. So think about, think about the people you're, you're outreaching. Facebook use went way up. So are there Facebook chats you can be on? Are there groups on Reddit? Are there groups, you know, wherever you are, are there Twitter chats about particular issues that are important to you and consider doing that when you do that with digital communities, Lean in for a minute because we have some very preliminary research. Sometimes folks are like, all oh, that digital stuff makes you worse. And then people are like, oh, no, that's how you get support. Turns out it's both. So some digital places are good for your mental health and help you get well. And we can measure that. And some have the opposite effect. Like any social group, some friends are really good for you. Some mm. friends are less good for you. So you should find that when you're picking social distractions online, digital social distractions, they should be things that your suicidal feelings get less. And if they're getting more, pick something different. You yeah. probably need to. Then, then it starts to talk about people I can tell about being very suicidal. And uh, you might find, like many people, that the people in your home are not the folks that you want to talk to. So you might need to find places where you can't be overheard. So you can't, having a private phone call when you're social distancing is really hard. So what we know is that text and chat ways of, of talking with folks may be preferred and you might want to update your safety plan so it doesn't have phone numbers, but it has like text or chat, like ways that you can find people and, and much more discreetly have a conversation about your suicidal thoughts and feelings. Then you're probably going to need to contact your therapist. So like people I can call for an appointment and you might, once again, telehealth, you might have to do that differently. Uh, if you need to have a telehealth appointment about your suicidality, it might not be something you want overheard. So you and your therapist might have to come up with a plan for that. You might need to re-figure out your emergency care. And there's almost always a good place on, on what's called lethal means restriction. Doesn't that sound horrible? But it's just basically not having dangerous things in your house. You may be 24-7 around the dangerous things that you might use to harm yourself. So do you have a reliable way that you can lock up or remove guns from the house that you can restrict access to lethal medications, to alcohol? Um, mixing alcohol with lots of other things makes it more lethal. So can we possibly not have the alcohol in the house? If you self-harm, even if it's not lethal, maybe the things that you self-harm, maybe they should not be in the house. Figuring out where they need to be may be hard. Maybe you need maybe you need to put them somewhere and have someone pick them up. If you have if your gun has to go elsewhere, that may be tricky to arrange. But when you are not suicidal, it's the time to reconfigure where your dangerous items are. And also like that's like that designated driver function. That's the time to enlist a friend. 
Uh, Barbara Stanley makes these recommendations and just a lot more. I highly recommend you yeah. look at her recommendations and you look at your safety plan and that you redo it. And, and you probably will educate your provider at the same time. Yep. And we will definitely be linking to that. So that's, that is amazing. Thanks for having plotted all that out. Um, really, really helpful. So uh, next, um, I think we're, we're all hopeful that we all want to be hopeful that the pandemic is going to end soon. Maybe that's four weeks from now, maybe that's two, three months from now. But we also need to be realistic that the impact of it will go much beyond this immediate, um, the immediate spread and impact of the virus. Um, there's a lot in the news about the long-term impact on the economy and the long-term impact yeah. on travel. What about the long-term impact and the fallout we might see, the progression? Um, once the immediacy of the pandemic starts, once we hit our peak, as they're calling it, starts to come down, what happens after that um, from a mental health perspective? You know, um, if anybody tells you they know what causes someone to feel suicidal and they really know it, I promise you it's not a suicidologist because we haven't made that kind of scientific progress in our field. So what I'm telling you now is really speculative. Now, this is the opinions of some of the best suicidologists in my field across the world. Um, We do know that economic factors tend to be connected with suicide rates, but not all the time. We know that the Asian financial crisis of 1997 did lead to an increase in suicides in Asia. But even when the economy recovered, the the, the suicide rate didn't necessarily drop to pre-crisis levels. We know that a strongly improving global economy helped strongly reduce China's suicide rate. So we know when things get better. And and lest you think that's China reporting those numbers, those those were numbers uh, collected by a Canadian uh, suicidologist and funded by American suicidology dollars, but, but in cooperation with China. And so we know that China dramatically dropped its suicide rate because the economy got more global, more modern, and people had more opportunities. We, so we know that there are things that tie economic well-being to mental well-being. This makes me really scared. Suicide in the United States before the pandemic was already at um, all-time historic highs. And we don't know why for sure, quite honestly. Um, and, and unless you think I'm making stuff up, Google me sometime. I've said this in the media. I don't know how many times, but I don't think a bad economy is going to make it better. I just, I just can't say what's going to happen. If, if your therapist or people helping you with your suicidal feelings aren't making aggressive plans to help you figure out how to pay your bills and figure out how you're going to cope, probably no bueno. I would tell you that I take people's economic and fiscal well-being very, very seriously, helping somebody with their suicidal recovery. And, and I, I know there's a stimulus package. I know that everybody's going to be worried about the economy and helping the economy recover. I just, you know, I just don't know how it's going to go. And I don't know that everybody's going to be a winner. And so take your financial health and security seriously. Take the impact on your well-being seriously. I, I'm, um, you know, I'm, I'm a pretty talkative person, but like even thinking about this is making my stomach churn, like right in this moment as I'm talking to you, because I'm very, very seriously worried for people's well-being. Mm. In, in that sense, if you know that this could be you, start taking really, really good care of your mental health. I don't know anybody who recovers from suicidal feelings if 
what if they die? And I don't know anybody who turns around their economic fortunes if they're dead. So the way the way that we get better is by surviving and staying alive. And so, like let's 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 hang on to each other really tight. And let's get through this together. Yeah, and thank you for being such a big force in helping people get through it. Um, we want this message to get out to as many people as possible, and we'll be uh, connecting to all these resources you mentioned. Um, so I guess the, the last question I have, um, we've talked a lot about, um, mental health from the perspective of suicide. Um, I, I want to hear from you, uh, what some things are we can all be doing wherever we're at on the mental health spectrum, whether this is the best day of our lives, because we get to finally work remotely and hang out at home with our dogs. <laughs> or we're isolated and alone and feeling really terrible. Um, what is what are some of those base, basic but crucial things all of us can be doing every day, no matter where you're at, to get through sure. this a little happier and healthier? So I will tell you what I did to my poor family. Uh, my poor family, their dad's a teacher, well, he's an educator and their mom's a shrink and this is like, this is how it goes, right? So when I knew that this was going on, I immediately knew that I had to start thinking about what our well-being was going to be like at the house. Here are some things that I know. Nobody does well if they don't sleep well. And sitting around for a couple of months inside where you can't leave can mess up your sleep. It it can do what's called thinning your sleep. So you'll sleep less. You won't sleep as deeply. You won't sleep regularly. So number one, I know I've mentioned sleep, I don't know how many times, but I cannot tell you enough how important it is for almost all kinds of health, including your mental health. So get yourself a schedule, get yourself a schedule, get yourself a schedule, even if you do, even if you're excited that you might not have to have one. So the first thing I did was I called a family meeting. We all came out and I said, we're going to have a schedule. And by the way, we have a Monday, Friday schedule and we have a weekend schedule. So we're trying to, trying to recreate that. I said, when are you getting up? And, you know, we're really, we're really monitoring this. And everybody's like, I'm getting up at this time. And I said, everybody get your phones out. We're setting alarms. We're getting up at this time. Get up at the same time. Go to bed at the same time. Be physically active to the extent that it's healthy and appropriate for you. You will not sleep well if you're really sedentary. That's like a great way to think your sleep. Your body thinks you're not exerting. And it doesn't, um, you're, you're, some people are really, really regular, no matter what you do with sleep. I'm one of those. I like wherever I am, 10 o'clock happens, I'm ready to go to bed usually. And so uh, one of the ways though, for some folks that they're, they aren't in a real circadian rhythm about that is to have periods of being active and periods of resting. And for those to come at the same times every day. So get yourself an exercise schedule or some sort of physical fitness thing that's appropriate for your health. Guys, you always need to consult with uh, your doctor about what's appropriate for you. Uh, for me, I'm first thing when I get up, I'm going and I'm walking three miles. Last thing before I go to bed, I'm walking three miles. It gets me up and going and it wears me out to sleep. It's also telling my body when it's giving cues to my body about waking up and about falling asleep. It's helping me maintain my circadian rhythm to the extent that you can eat on time. I know I'm talking about the schedule thing, but I just, I can't emphasize enough. You're going to be a mess if you start to do things like there's no time and there's no routine. It all the things that keep your um, physical, mental self stable start to kind of fall fall apart. Eat well, eat healthy, eat on time. Now, 
Let's talk about mindfulness. These are things that everyone can do. One of my friends here in town is a Buddhist monk who's also gotten his PhD in clinical psychology and he has an, he has an emphasis in PTSD. He's a brilliant guy. Just, just love him. And he does mindfulness meditation nights on Friday nights just for anxiety, like just for people, like whether you're Buddhist or not, you go. And so that mindfulness meditation, there are literally hundreds of thousands of tutorials. My Alexa you have one of those little things that you got for Christmas, your little echo situation, I have a five minute morning and I have, oh, Alexa heard me. <laughs> I have a five minute morning. I have, there's a, there is a minute of meditation. There's a minute of, of setting my intentions for the day. There's a minute, a minute of dancing, moving to beat where I do some like high intensity stuff that helps me breathe. There's, there's a minute of expressing gratitude and it's only five minutes, but I just do it every day. If you can work in, you know, five minutes, 15 minutes, 20 minutes of mindfulness and meditation, what we know is that's very regulated to your limbic system. And so that part of you that is in that fight or flight response, the part of you that's anxious, the part of you that's ruminating and cannot sleep. And that's part that's really honestly involved with a lot of mental illness stuff. And also just for not being happy in your everyday life, even if you never qualify for diagnosis, mindfulness and meditation is going to help you be fine. If you need to, and I think you need to, turn off the news, do things that help you connect with others. Uh, When we talk about happiness research, connecting with others, giving back, can you provide service? Like um, I've done some things for my neighbors. I'm doing things for others like this podcast, for example. Do things for the people in your house. Do something to contribute if you can and look for things to be grateful for. I think if you keep your body on a really regular schedule, if you keep yourself mindful and turn off the things that cause you to be scared or anxious, if if it's not helping you, and the extent to which you find ways to contribute positively, you're you're just going to be better off uh, day in and day out. That's amazing. Thank you so much. I'm going to be doing all those things you just listed. So. Um, uh, Alex, you're such a delight. Thank you so much for having me. Thank you so much. Um, any any last uh, message you want to get out to everyone, whether it's just inspiration, information? Everyone's everyone's going through it right now. And we're, uh, if, I, if you can't avoid being in a horrible historic global pandemic crisis, at least you don't have to be in it alone. Yeah. Uh, and uh, like, let's let's all just look out after each other and take care of each other the best that we can. Thanks for tuning in to Closer Social Distancing. We've listed many of the crisis resources mentioned by Dr. Foreman in the show description and on our website at closersocialdistancing.com slash resources. We've got more great interviews coming your way. So hit subscribe and we'll see you next time.